0: black canary. I'll need a sparring partner. I'm Zatanna. Why do you care about some leggy damon nylons? Or have I answered my own question? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for- Hello and welcome to Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, proud fan of superheroes who wear fishnet stockings. This is episode four, and you know if it's an even-numbered episode, we're covering some Black Canary comics. This time up the two latest issues from the current Black Canary series, which would be issues eight and nine if you're keeping score. But first, I'm going to address some listener feedback. Now, this is somewhat of an experiment for me. I've done like. 80 podcasts since the beginning of 2015, and I've always addressed listener comments and emails at the end of the episode. But I've heard other podcasters respond to feedback before diving into the main topic. I'm going to try that out on Power Fishnets and see how I like it. I'm also going to do feedback every episode, but when I do a Black Canary show, I'm going to read the feedback from the previous Black Canary episode. When I do a Zatana episode, I'll read the comments from the last Zatana show. Make sense? And that means these comments that I'm going to read were left on Power of Fishnets Episode 2, which covered Black Canary Issues 6 and 7. The first comment came from Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary. Ange said, I completely agree with you that the look and art of this book was its strongest element. If you ever want to show someone why comics is such a great medium linking words and images, this is a book to give them. Innovative, intelligent, amazing. For a book built around music and sound, there are a lot of silent pages that still evoke just what the storytellers are trying to convey to us. I am so glad that Annie Wu got to do these issues, because she brings her A-game. She must have been exhausted after them, because there are so many inset panels, tiny panels, wild page layouts, but it all works wonderfully. Yeah, Ange is absolutely right. Which should surprise no one. He's a doctor, after all. Siskoid from the Oh Hot Moo or Not podcast said... I haven't read a new comic in months, but I liked this Black Canary series from the DCU preview and the first couple of issues, and will probably be picking it up in trade. I love the idea, and wow, that page with a musical notation rocks my world. It's Black Canary as Scott Pilgrim, but DC's dying cred and inability to market and support books has led to its demise despite that rockin' premise. I guess it's back to IDW's gem and the holograms for us. Well, wow, thank God Cisco had specified IDW's gem and not the movie that came out in 2015. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast said, It just occurred to me that this may be one of the few times in entertainment that a concept graft like this actually resulted in superior work. Josie and the Pussycats in space, Gilligan's Planet, and even that last season of Mask where suddenly they became NASCAR-like racers come to mind. All of those came off as pandering and desperate grabs at just doing something different with little artistic merit, even for kids' cartoons. This, on the other hand, is a high-concept reworking using Canary's signature power as a hook. The artwork and color is stunning, and the novelty of sound defeating a monster must be commended. I think I'm going to have to look into the trade as well. Nathaniel Wayne from 90s Comics Retrial said, "...as I continue to suffer through reliving the 90s on my own podcast, I feel the need to point out that sound as weapons isn't quite as unique as you're painting it. I know this because I've had to watch both Venom and Carnage be repeatedly battled with or defeated by sonic and sound-based weapons, including Carnage being taken down by the concert-ready sound system of Madison Square Garden at the end of his original appearance." Of course, it wasn't done with a quarter of the visual style and flair that's on display here, but, you know, I have to suffer having these things in my head, and spreading the disease is almost like treating it. Yeah, Nathaniel has a point that sonic attacks and sonic weapons have long been a part of superhero stories, but when you're dealing with the world of characters who can shoot lasers from their eyes, their fingers, or just the general torso region, calling something a sonic attack is really just another type of energy blast. Those are part of the fundamental language of superhero comics, and they don't feel out of place the same way a comic centered on music does. But Nathaniel does bring up a good point about Carnage getting taken down by the sound system at the stadium concert. And the last comment came from B. Grimoire, who said... Great review. I'm really enjoying this podcast so far. Black Canary and Zatanna are both characters that I'd really like to learn more about, as the most I've seen them on would be the Justice League Unlimited show, and Bloodspell, which I picked up after your review. Also, I'm not sure if you have heard, but apparently a free album called Kicking and Screaming has been released online as a canon album by Black Canary. If it's not unique, it's certainly unusual, and the music has a similar feel to the comic itself. They even released a tour schedule. Well, thank you for that comment, and I am glad that you picked up Blood Spell, and I hope you continue to enjoy this podcast as you learn more about Zatanna and Canary. To be Grimoire's last point, I have downloaded the Black Canary EP. It's three songs, it is so, so very cool, and I am going to tell you all about it, but I'm going to wait until episode 6, so that will be next month when I dive into more or less the soundtrack to Black Canary. Uh, In the meantime, Chris Franklin and Siskoid and other listeners have talked about checking out the Black Canary series when it comes out in trade paperback. Well, not to put anyone on the spot, but the first trade is now available— Black Canary Volume 1, Kicking and Screaming. It collects issues 1 through 7, as well as the 8 page preview that came with one of the Convergence comics last year. The retail price is $14.99, but you can probably find it cheaper if you buy it online. For instance, InStockTrades.com has it on sale for $8.24. That is a 45% discount. $8.25, 8 dollars quarter, basically for seven issues and one preview. That's not a bad value. Not bad at all for these days when a new Marvel comic costs $5. And that is all for the listener feedback section. Thank you, everyone, who wrote in or supported the show on social media. Remember, you can leave feedback on the Power Fishnets Facebook page or on Twitter. You can leave a comment on the blog page, which is at fireandwaterpodcast.com. You could also leave an iTunes review, which would be a great help for people who want to discover this show. Next episode, I'll be covering... wait, hang on, I'm not done yet. Man, listener feedback at the beginning is weird, it's throwing off my whole flow, but okay, I'll try to stick with it. So, anyway, I am going to take a quick promo break to advertise some friends of the show, but I will be back in a minute to talk about Black Canary Issue 8. Don't go away. Don't call them babes, definitely don't call them broads, but can we call them birds? Welcome to Feathers and Foes, a Birds of Prey podcast where we are celebrating the tales of the femme fatales. Superman flies above you, Aquaman rules below you, but the birds stand with you. Feathers and Foes, I'm your host Ashford, and in the studio with me is... Hello. Black Canary? Wait a minute, what did you do with Leah and Mark? Did you just call me a broad? No, I said don't call them babes, don't call them broads. So you're saying I'm not a babe? No, yes, I don't know. I, I don't see you as some object. I see you as a well rounded character with her own wants, desires, and agency. Stop saying buzzwords, hoping to gain a female audience. Canary, how dare you question my sincerity? That's black canary to you. Do you want me to plug your show or not? Please plug my show, Miss Canary. You can contact Ashford, Leah, or Mark on Twitter. The Twitter handle is at Feathers and Foes. You can also email them on the website feathersandfoes.libsyn.com. In addition to all of this, you may subscribe to them on iTunes. Just go to the search option and type Feathers and Foes. issue 8 is written by Brendan Fletcher, with art by Sandy Jarrell, who is a man, I found out, thankfully, before it got awkward. The rest of the creative team is the same as usual, Lee Loffridge on colors, Steve Wands on letters, Annie Wu did the cover, which shows a close-up of Dinah being held at knife point by the mysterious white ninja woman. The issue was edited by Dave Wildgoss, Chris Conroy, and Mark Doyle. The issue begins with a page from the Burnside Tofu, that is an independent fanzine that has chronicled the highs and lows of the Black Canary Band's tour since the series began. The headline on the zine says, Black Canary over? And I think we're to interpret that as the title of the story, because I don't see another title anywhere in the issue. The Burnside Tofu article briefly recaps the events of the last two issues that I covered back in episode two. Black Canary, the band, engaged in a battle of the bands with jilted ex-lead singer Bo Maeve's new band. Dinah and Bo Maeve created competing sonic screams that appeared to kill Ditto and Dinah's ex-husband, Kurt Lance. This recap segues into a police interrogation room where some of Gotham's finest question Black Canary's drummer, Lord Byron, keyboardist Paloma, and tour manager Heathcliff. The cops want to know about the apparent deaths of Ditto and Lance, the ruckus caused when Black Canary held an impromptu concert in Gotham Stadium to stop the sound monster called the Quietus, and the subsequent disappearance of their lead singer, Dinah. The cops have a whole lot of questions, but very little evidence, and certainly no bodies, since we know that Ditto and Kurt didn't die. Ditto is an other-dimensional being of living sound, and Kurt was displaced in time, so that now he's an extremely aged man with a ton of money. Hmm. I wonder if that makes his chances of reconciling with Dinah better or worse. Anyway, the band's team of lawyers show up, spring them from holding, and pass on a message from Kurt. Dinah's in Berlin and needs their help. Kurt wants them to follow her to Berlin under cover of performing in a goth rock cabaret show. Despite Dinah's numerous attempts to cut ties with the band for their own protection, Byron, Paloma, and Ditto all feel loyal and protective of Dinah. And what is the object of their affection up to at the moment? Well, Dinah is in some hidden compound in the wilderness outside Berlin. Here she's taking part in a massive Kumite brawl with a dozen other martial arts champions. We find her in the arena, with no less than 16 broken or unconscious people scattered about the floor. Only two fighters remain to challenge Dinah, and both wield swords. The whole thing is observed by dozens of people wearing satyr masks, like ancient figures with ram or goat horns and their tongues sticking out. Vaguely satanic, but also rooted in fertility symbols, I think. Imagine the movie Eyes Wide Shut, but instead of all the people in masks and robes watching an orgy, they're watching Fight Club or Enter the Dragon. Also seated among the spectators is one woman who isn't masked. She's a big, tough-looking woman that we'll eventually get to know is called Grey Eyes. She's dressed in an old French hussar jacket, and I kind of imagine that in the script, Brendan Fletcher told Sandy Jarrell to draw MMA's Ronda Rousey dressed for Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club. Also, Grey Eyes wears a particular totem necklace that will be explained shortly. So the last two fighters go at Dinah, and she brings them down with her fists and her feet. Grey Eyes says she's seen enough and orders Dinah to go back to her cell. Dinah, I want to mention, is not dressed in any of her gaudy black leather and fishnet fashion that she sported during her Black Canary tour. Simple black t-shirt and cargo pants. Her wrists and ankles are taped up, and she has a metal collar around her neck. She returns to a prison cell, but nobody drags her there. There doesn't even appear to be an escort, just some guards at the cell. The impression is pretty clear that she's not a guest of whoever these weirdos are. She is technically a prisoner, but she's only staying in that cell because she chooses to. Maybe it has to do with the fact that Dinah isn't alone in her cell. She shares it with another woman, a runway model named Marie McCabe, but better known to comics fans as Vixen. Vixen identifies the woman spectator as gray eyes, and asks Dinah if she saw her wearing Vixen's totem. The Tantu totem is a sacred and powerful relic, and when Vixen wears it, it gives her all sorts of cool powers. Dinah can only give Vixen a thumbs up, because the collar on her neck inhibits her voice, and thus her destructive sonic scream. Vixen tears a strip of her dress so she can treat the laceration on Dinah's arm. As she does, she tries to formulate an escape plan with Dinah. And that's when the White Ninja shows up. You know, Vixen, I could just free you both right now, the White Ninja says. But then my niece and I might never find out what happened to her mother. So there we have it. The mystery woman identifies herself as Dinah's aunt. Aunt or aunt. I've always pronounced it aunt. Maybe it's a Midwestern thing. I don't know. Anyway, not Dinah's mother, like some people suspected. Not her sister, Sarah, as others predicted. But her aunt. Aunt, and later on, Dinah will call her Aunt Rena. Vixen tells Rena to open the door and free them. Rena doesn't want to do that, not until Dinah finishes the job, which has something to do with figuring out the truth about Dinah's mother, Rena's sister's death or disappearance. And to placate Vixen, who doesn't have a stake in their family drama and only wants to get out, Rena gives us all some needed exposition. And rather than sum it up anymore, I'm just going to let the text speak for me. Before Dinah was born, her mother was one of the world's most talented martial artists. She founded this institution with her closest friends as a house of learning. She was so young then. She thought her peers and pupils were in safe hands, and moved on with her life, met a nice man, built a small family. But a terrible evil started to sprout in place of the school. Feeling responsible, Dinah's mother left her world behind to set things right. She never returned. Her teammates, the school's former teachers, are now turning up dead, and believe me when I tell you, these warrior women would not fall easily. We've lost two of my sister's closest allies and friends in the past months. The killers were looking for something, and now they think they've found it. Indina. They'll make her fight until they get what they want, the Five Heaven's Palm, her mother's secret technique." Rena concludes her monologue by reiterating that Dinah turned herself over to this group so they could study her and test her, and see if the secret of the Five Heavens Palm technique is buried inside her. In the meantime, Dinah and Rina are trying to find out what happened to her mother. Now, Vixen asks the very question that I, and hopefully you, were asking. Say, Rina, how do you know all this? How did you become a martial arts master? Where were you for almost all of Dinah's life? Naturally, Rena says family business and leaves, warning Vixen not to screw up her plan. Cut to Gotham City Airport. Byron, Paloma, Ditto, and Heathcliff board a plane bound for Germany. When they get a shock, Beau Mave is on the flight, and double shock, Kurt Lance paid her ticket too. For good or ill, Beau Mave's fate seems to be tied to Black Canaries. Back in the Kumite prison. Vixen confesses that she's a fan of Black Canary's music, but she can't stay in this cell. Her manager was hurt when this sinister group captured her, and she needs to check on her. So Vixen slams her own head against the bars until she draws blood, and she screams that Dinah is trying to kill her. The guards, who are all wearing satyr masks, come to check on the prisoners. When they open the door, Vixen attacks. But Dinah's Aunt Rena doesn't want them to leave, and she knocks Vixen back to the floor. She tells Dinah that escaping now will ruin what they've been working for, finding Dinah's mother. But Dinah can't sit back and watch the guards, who completely ignore the white ninja in the room, gang up on Vixen. Dinah takes down the guards and disables the inhibitor collar so that she can finally speak again. Then Grey Eyes arrives with some more guards, looking ready to pound the stuffing out of Dinah and Vixen. Unfortunately, Dinah's got more than just her speaking voice back. She lets out a relatively minor canary cry that blasts Grey Eyes, knocking the woman unconscious. Vixen retrieves her Tantu totem that Grey Eyes stole. Remember how I told you it grants her abilities? It actually gives Vixen the power of any animal, so when she and Dinah need to break out of the prison, Vixen summons the strength of an elephant and smashes down the wall. Out in the courtyard, however, the ladies are surrounded by dozens of the satyr ninjas. Also, Grey Eyes wakes up. Grey Eyes whips a chain around Dinah's throat. She calls down some lightning, apparently, she can do that, with the word schwa, and then feeds the electricity through the chain, shocking Dinah. Bixen channels the power of a grizzly bear and lashes out at Grey Eyes. The German Fight Club leader says "Quonchwa" again and starts to channel more electric energy like she's preparing for her finishing move but Dinah hits back with her sonic scream that flattens Grey Eyes. Dinah and Vixen have a clear path to escape, but Dinah looks back and sees Rena watching her go. The satyr ninjas are closing in on Dinah and Vixen, but they completely ignore Rena. Dinah doesn't want to leave her aunt. She wants to continue the mission and find out what happened to her mother, but Vixen points out Dinah really has no reason to trust this woman. The ninjas force them to act. Dinah stays long enough to beat the tar out of a whole bunch of those ninjas, and then lets Vixen carry her off, Vixen using the power of an eagle to fly them away from the compound. Dinah and Vixen agree to go back to their homes and check on their loved ones, Vixen's manager and Dinah's band, to make sure everyone is safe, and then they'll come back and bring this cultish fight club down for good. But Dinah buys a plane ticket back to Gotham City just as her bandmates arrive in Berlin. They miss each other in the airport, and Maeve gets a flyer for where the band is supposed to play, a place called Unvenhoft Off, which I think translates to the unexpected comes often, or something like that. The place is run by an aging rocker named Isaac Arado, and his club has the same satyr mask as the ninjas Dinah was fighting. So, you know, that's going to be a thing. The stinger at the end says, Next, playing for the enemy. Okay, first I want to talk about the art, because Annie Wu did not illustrate this issue. That's not a first for the series, Pia Guerra drew several of the issues during the first story arc. Sandy Jorrell's style is much closer to Guerra's. He doesn't go crazy with panel construction, he doesn't use the art to change the language of the story, but honestly, nobody does what Annie Wu does. That's not saying the art is bad, because it's good. It's not DC's big Jim Lee house style, it's much more low-key and independent. But, as I always say, it fits the style and the voice of this story. Lee Lofridge's colors keep the story in the same realm as the previous issue, and that does a lot for the book's continuity. I am constantly amazed by what the colors on this series do to elevate the mood of a scene. Lofridge gets it. And I have to say, jor and Loffridge are at their best when Vixen finally gets her powers back and cuts loose. I've seen Vixen's power visualized by dozens of artists, And this combo is right up there with the best, like an orange-tang-colored ghost-of-the-animal-shadowing-vixen. I'll post an image on the website, you gotta see it. So, what about the story? I should deduct a few points because Dinah's in cargo pants instead of fishnets, but I'll let it slide this time. Because this is the Black Canary story I've been waiting years for. I'm not criticizing the Black Canary as rockstar direction that has driven the series so far, you know I loved that. But the first seven-issue arc felt like it existed in its own pocket universe. An awesome story, but one that could have easily been outside of DC continuity. And Annie Wu's art is so innovative, so kinetic, that, well, the song's music outdistanced the lyrics, oftentimes. That's no longer the case. With Sandy Girrell's more simplified style, the story steps up, and instead of being out of continuity, it feels like Brendan Fletcher finally establishes where Dinah belongs in the DC Universe. I've made the case that for Black Canary to carry her own series, she needs to play to a specific niche. Either street-level private eye stories, or kung fu fighting adventures. We definitely get the latter, and it's brilliant. This story is setting up Black Canary to be DC's equivalent to Marvel's Immortal Iron Fist. Which is exactly right. Now, this is only the first part of the story that I'm guessing will play out over the last three issues of the series. But the setup is awesome. Dinah is in a German underground fight club. Awesome. She's kicking the crap out of ninjas wearing goat horn Satan masks awesome. She's teaming up with Vixen, awesome. I've always liked Vixen. She has such a cool, versatile, and underrated power set, and it looks great when it's on display here. I hope she returns in future issues. And Brendan Fletcher makes a great callback in this issue. When the ladies are in the jail cell, Vixen tells Dinah that she's admired her fighting style since they defended the surface world from invading Atlanteans. This was in the Justice League story Throne of Atlantis that got Black Canary an audition for the Justice League membership, but they ended up picking someone else, which sucked. But still, it's nice that Fletcher references it and uses it to lend more credibility to Dinah's fighting prowess. And let me talk about the White Ninja for a second. Fletcher does something that is both relieving and frustrating. He gives us a name and an identity for the White Ninja, so we can finally call her something other than the White Ninja. She is Dinah's mother's sister, Rena. She reveals that Dinah was an only child, so no chance of a Sarah Lance or Drake or whatever. But the thing is, we don't really know if we can trust anything she has to say. Rena says Dinah's mother founded this martial arts academy, which was later corrupted, but she doesn't say what part she, Rena, played in the academy or how she learned to fight. Did she learn from Dinah's mother? Was she one of the five founding members of the dojo? Is she the one who turned evil and is killing people? Rena says Dinah's mother disappeared and that her friends are being hunted down and killed, but what if she's the one doing the hunting and killing? Rena has been teaching Dinah new fighting techniques. She says Grey Eyes in this cult are trying to discover the secret of the Five Heavens Palm, which was mastered by Dinah's mother. They believe that Dinah has the power of that technique. But it sure looks like Rena believes it too and wants Dinah to discover the power. Is that so she can avenge her mother, or does Rena want the power for herself? And seriously, it sure looks like the Seder Ninjas either can't see Rena, or they're working for her or with her. This issue certainly points to an obligatory fight between Dinah and Rena in issue 11 or 12. It was so refreshing reading this issue and being reminded of a Birds of Prey story by Chuck Dixon or Gail Simone. Grey Eyes has crazy electric powers, Dinah has her sonic scream, it's like Mortal Kombat with a touch of Kill Bill, the perfect tone for Black Canary. Dinah's mom and four other women founding this martial arts academy reminds me of the Deadly Viper Assassin Squad, but the best part, the part that has me really excited, is the notion that Dinah will master this Five Heavens Palm technique. Black Canary is one of the best fighters in the DC Universe. But that's easy to dismiss, because for most people the list begins and ends with Batman. If you're not Batman, who cares, and Black Canary will never be Batman. But she can have this one signature move, besides the Canary Cry. If she can have her own version of the Iron Fist Punch, that will add to her rep and truly cement her as one of the premier heroes in the DC Universe. Now, that's not all in this issue, which is why I can't say that this is the best Black Canary comic I've ever read. Not yet but everything in this issue seems to be pointing in that direction, and if that's how the rest of the series plays out, if that's how Brendan Fletcher ends Black Canary, I might consider this the best one. Definitely the story I have been waiting for DC to tell. I am so high on this issue, but I've got another book to review this episode, which I am going to cover right after this promo break, so don't go away. which is the hottest Marvel character? Iron Man. Eight man I can't decide between Professor X and Magneto, so both. Loki. Is Wolverine Marvel? <laughs> what about uh, White Tiger? What about uh, White Tiger? Uh, Doc <laughs> Samson. Who is, he? Who is he? Uh, huh? Star Fox. That's a video game. <laughs> The girls go on a journey to determine every Marvel character's hotness in Ohatmu or Not, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe podcast you didn't know you wanted. Available on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Black Canary issue 9 came out on March 16th, 2016. The story, titled Please, Please, Please Let Me Get What I Want, was written by... not Brendan Fletcher, but Matthew Rosenberg. The artist was... Not Annie Wu, or Sandy Jarrell, or Piaguera, but Moritat, Lee Loffridge and Steve Wands did the colors and the letters, Wea March did the cover, and the usual three guys edited the book. So you'll notice this is a new creative team. That's because this is a fill-in issue. After the amazing, exhilarating setup of last issue, I get a fill-in. <sighs> One year earlier, when the band is just getting started, a woman named Allegra Madden hires Black Canary to perform at her daughter's birthday party. The band meets young Julia Madden, who is just the biggest fan of Black Canary. She talks in massive text dumps, but we gather that she's got a crush on a boy named Louis Barbier. But her mother says their family has had a falling out with the Barbiers. Hmm. Then, as Dinah and the band are getting ready, who should show up out of nowhere but Tobias Whale, a noted gangster in the DC universe? Dinah starts to fight with Whale and his bodyguards when Allegra stops them and tells her that Whale is a business associate of her father, who just so happens to be Carmine Falcone, the godfather of the Gotham mob scene. While the band is setting up, Dinah gets a drink and tries to reconcile the idea of playing a concert for criminals, all while other Gotham City hoods show up, like Hugo Strange, Black Mask, and Professor Pig. It's too much, and Dinah tells the band to pack up. They are not going to play this show. But backstage, Dinah reunites with a former Team 7 partner, turned assassin-for-hire named Valentine Chan. Dinah disarms Chan while playing it off for the band like they're just chummy good friends and nobody's totally in danger but she discovers that Chan was hired to kill young Julia Madden at her birthday party. Dinah also discovers that other assassins have been sent there to kill the birthday girl, so she agrees the band has to stay and play so she can protect Julia. She moves around the club, taking out different killers and assassins, and then the band takes the stage. They play their show, and everything seems to be going well until she spots another killer targeting Julia. Dinah leaps off the stage and thrashes the last assassin before he can shoot Julia in the face. But Julia screams and runs to the killer's side. Because the killer was Louis Barbier, the boy she's crushing on. She doesn't care that he was going to kill her, she only cares that Dinah damaged his beautiful face. So she cries and screams, she hates Black Canary, and Allegra Men refuses to pay the band for their service. Okay, up front, the story is fine. In a vacuum, I would say some really good things about it. In fact, I didn't realize it wasn't Brendan Fletcher writing until I got to the end. I didn't look at the cover very hard because it's not a very interesting cover, and the creator credits aren't listed until the last page. I did wonder why the book had taken such an abrupt change in direction from last issue, but Rosenberg wrote Dinah and the others very appropriately. The characterization was spot on, so while the story seemed like an inexplicable diversion, I didn't realize it was just a fill-in until the end. That's a credit to Rosenberg and Moritat. they actually did well with this issue. The teenage Julia was a little over the top, and the finale that she cares more about a boy than her own safety was over the top again, but it was funny enough and it worked for the tone of the series. If this issue had come out earlier in the life of Black Canary, even if it had traded places with issue 8, I wouldn't have any complaints. But it came after last month's all-time amazing setup issue, so this one is a lackluster, really frustrating follow-up. Like I said, the art and the writing is fine, it's even good, but it's not what I wanted. I wanted more Dinah and Rena in the Five Heavens Palm story. Bring on the Sater Ninjas, and get Black Canary back to where she belongs. We've got three more issues in the series to get there, and I am really excited for them. That is going to be all for this episode. Yeah. Hmm. Hey, yeah, I've already done listener feedback, so yeah, done. Okay, that's all for this episode. Next Power of Fishnets is going to continue Zatana's search, and on episode 6, I will review Black Canary issue 10 and the official music of the band. Power of Fishnets is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Power Fishnets Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter at BlackCanaryFan, or you can send an email to podcast at gmail.com. Power of Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening.